Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate again, Ben and I are friends, and we're also automotive journalists. In fact, you can find our work all over the internet, and I'm going to take this opportunity to let Ben tell people where where you can find his work and some other things that he wants to talk about. This is basically his like soapbox moment. Go. Wow, soapbox moment. I, I, I almost don't know what to say. Uh, you can find my work at Motor Trend, at Inside Hook, and at Driving Line. Um, you can also pick up a graphic novel that I currently have available for sale at, on Kickstarter. It's called Code 45, and it's about a woman named Vanessa who is a subway driver who discovers that on the night shift in Montreal, there are these dragons that live in the tunnels below the city. And all of her colleagues on the night shift are terrified of going to work because of this. So they start self-medicating with various drugs to try and get through their shifts. And it gets to the point where they can't tell what's real and what's not. And not only does Vanessa have to figure that out for herself, but she has to uh, understand how it ties into a secret about her own family's past. So that's called Code 45, and it's available at code-45.com. And we still have a couple weeks left on the Kickstarter, actually 13 days left as of the time of this recording. So probably about 10 days by the time this goes live. Uh, you're, little, you're sharing the secret sauce of how we little record. peek behind the curtain there on the recording process for this week's episode. But yeah, code-45.com. We've had an amazing amount of support from a whole bunch of people, and a lot of them are podcast listeners. Um, I want to big, uh, give a big uh, shout out to Tobias, especially for coming up for, coming up big for us this week. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, it, there we have met our funding goal and we have some cool extra stuff that we're going to throw in as we continue to um, gather supporters and pledges. So that's pretty much that, Sammy. Awesome. Um, first of all, if you haven't seen the graphics of this novel, I really do. I really do emphasize you should take a look at Code Forty Five for the um, the beautiful visuals and the great story. But I think the visuals really capture your attention. Um, and for those who are wondering, I don't have a graphic novel, so don't ask me about what I've got cooking up. I'm just an automotive journalist. You can find my work at um, AutoTrader.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and uh, Driving.ca. And Ben, I think we've got some pretty cool cars to talk about this week. I'm going to let you take the helm of the podcast. Don't uh, don't steer it in any weird directions here. So I want you to start us off with this um, with this European SUV that you've been driving. Sure. And uh, one more shout out uh, for for another longtime listener of the podcast and a, and a friend uh, Jamie who who came up big too on the the Code Forty Five Kickstarter. I know them forgetting people, and I appreciate all of you. Um, the vehicle that Sammy is talking about is the 2021 Aston Martin DBX, uh, which is the very first SUV that Aston Martin has ever built. And I know right now that a lot of people are out there in podcast land shaking their heads or, you know, sighing or rolling in their disgust, eyes. In disgust, obviously, in just pure... And they're, and they're angry about it. I mean, that's They're how so angry. Really... Everyone's getting added all the time because of this vehicle. <laughs> but it, a lot of that's understandable. The Aston Martin was the last company, Sammy, from the kind of traditional British luxury world to go into the SUV space. I mean, we had Rolls-Royce with the, what? how do we say it? Cullinan? Is that how it's said? Yeah, I believe so. And okay. the, and Bentley and the Bentayga. Yeah, which is uh, probably the worst name for a vehicle um, after Tiguan, I think. <laughs> Tiger Iguana? And then we had Lamborghini, which is, you know, not British, but similar price point with the Urus. And Ferrari has a vehicle coming. So 
Aston Martin is the the thing about that company is they've always kind of been outsiders, Sammy. And I mean that in a yeah. positive way. Like, Aston Martin never really built the fastest sports cars, and they never mm-hmm. really built the most luxurious cars. They kind of occupied a middle space where you could get a cool alternative to something like a Porsche 911, you know, that wasn't hardcore, that wasn't going to um, pose as a track car, yet at the same time would be almost as quick as a very, very focused sports car. Uh, and they also built at the same time as being, you know, almost as quick. It was just as comfortable, if not more so, with extra exclusivity because it was, you know, hand built and um, yeah. had just, it, it didn't, it, it was outside the mainstream, I guess you could I say. I mean, these things, they weren't, they just were, I think they were very, like, lifestyle oriented exotics, which is something weird to say because, like, all of these exotics are kind of, you know, they, they fit a certain lifestyle. But, this was like an alternative to that too, right? Like you didn't have to. I, I thought they were always kind of really um, attractive and uh, attractive looking and attractive sounding. And I'm curious to see whether or not the DBX maintains all those staples or if it's just a we had to do it to keep the, the brand alive sort of thing, right? So it's it's kind of a mix of both those things. So uh, part of the um, <laughs> part of Aston Martin's independence and being able to kind of flit around the margins of the luxury exotic space has come with instability. I mean, this is a company that in the last, they've been around for, I think, 108 years, and they've changed ownership seven times, at least, during okay. that period. So if you... So, like, based on that calculation, we should be expecting them to change uh, ownership soon, right? Well, I think they did just last year. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> with uh, Lawrence Stroll picking up a controlling interest in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, so Aston Martin really needs a vehicle like the DBX. They sell maybe, I think... 3,000 max vehicles a year and they wanted something that would give them volume obviously SUVs are what's doing that now but volume for a company like Aston Martin I mean that could mean a thousand more vehicles you know like or 2,000 more vehicles which would be an increase of almost 50% over their current sales so they don't have to overdo it and uh, but they, they will. I mean, no, sorry, hold on. Every SUV, every new SUV to a company that never had one, be it Lamborghini or Genesis or or uh, Rolls Royce or Bentley, like just explodes the entire sales, like the 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 productivity of the, of the company, right? Like, yeah. So it's this... never been like, oh, we sold a couple of them. It's always been like, oh, we doubled all of our sales by by at least by introducing this SUV. And and if you think about it, I mean, if they only ever sold a couple of them, they would never would build it. Like it's exactly. not something there's no compelling reason to build this vehicle except to sell it. It's yeah. not something that ties into Aston Martin's heritage. It's not something that necessarily speaks about where the brand has been going over time. It's something that is a direct response to a financial reality imposed on it by the way the market works. And I get that. But at the same time, I didn't find the DBX to be cynical. Uh, I didn't find this was a vehicle that was built just for those reasons. When it was built, they actually took care to do as much as they could to make it an Aston Martin. And I know that that mean. Well, I know that sounds like marketing, and it's like something you could say about the Cullinan and the Bentega. But when I look at those vehicles, I don't really see anything about the brands represented in them. Okay. Whereas with the DBX, after driving it. It doesn't go all out. It's not a super crazy sporty SUV like the Urus. Um, it, it's very, very comfortable, but it's not over the top. You don't have like lambs, lambs wool uh, floor mats and that kind of stuff like you'd find in a Rolls Royce. There's no umbrella holder. So it doesn't feel precious. 
It okay. feels legitimately like a very, very expensive high-end SUV that uh, is reasonably f- decent enough to drive when you're going quickly. I assume it has off-road capability. I didn't test that out, but it does have about you know eight to nine inches of ground clearance, and it's got a you can lift it up on the air shocks if you want to to get a mm-hmm. little bit more. And so, and, and interior-wise, there's enough space for four people, and it's pretty comfortable. And there's decent cargo space, although, I mean, this is a SUV that has the same cargo space as a Volkswagen GTI. It's about 52 cubic feet with the rear rows folded, and I, I filled it to the brim. Um, that doesn't sound like a good note to provide. G- unless that's, you're saying the GTI is as, as spacious as an SUV, or are you trying to say that the DBX is as impractical as a sm- or as practical as a compact hatchback? Right? Well, I think like, I think the DBX matches like a midsize crossover for cargo space, and I, I think the, I think the GTI does that as well. I'm I'm actually struggling. I think there's something about the design that makes me struggle to visualize or compare it. Like there's no scale. I don't know how big this thing is. Is it something that would compare? Um, size-wise to the Cayenne or something smaller than that? It feels very much like a Q7. Okay, okay. that sounds Cayenne-sized, I guess. Maybe um, a bit bigger. It's not super big. It doesn't drive big either, which is cool. nice. Uh, it, it it also doesn't feel huge from the inside. Like, uh, in, in terms of its driving... Uh, when, you, pers- when you say feel huge, you mean like it doesn't feel like cavernous? Or no, it doesn't, it doesn't feel cavernous. Feel like- and it, it doesn't feel cavernous and it doesn't drive big. Those are two different things. Yeah. But uh, it, it kind of doesn't wrap- do either of those things. That's interesting. No, it kind of wraps around you, which is nice. It's easy to drive in the city. Didn't really have any problems with it, uh, which is more than I can say for other luxury SUVs. Like, <laughs> I, I really like the X7. We've talked about it. But an, an X7 is much larger, or at least it feels much larger than a DBX. Yeah, it feels like a condo on wheels sometimes. Yeah, so that's kind of the other extreme of the ultra luxury side, right? Which is, I think, where Rolls-Royce went, and to a certain degree, Bentley. Right. But uh, the the DBX it it kind of carves walks its own path. Um, Aston Martin designed the chassis and the platform itself, but the engine comes from AMG, just like oh, yeah. m- most other. I don't think Aston Martin has designed its own motor since the '60s. Uh, they've kind of focused on what they can afford to do, and and that's chassis development, interior styling, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you're getting uh, it's a twin turbo four liter V8. And it's got decent power. It's like 542 horses, 516 pounds of feet of torque. Uh, you get to 60 in like 3.9 seconds, which is pretty amazing for a 6,000-pound vehicle. And I guess, you know, it, pricing-wise, it's comparable to like a Maserati Levant GTS. Okay. Um, it's just under a Bentega V8, but there's a, there's a spicier Bentega as well. I think this is this one's 170 grand. So there's room for Aston Martin to kind of push this vehicle up with a spicier version of the motor, which they can easily do because we know that this motor from Mercedes-Benz is in a huge variety of vehicles and there's a really wide range of power power availability. Interesting. Um, talk to me about how it feels. Talk to me about that, that power plant. It, it feels very quick. It's not that loud, though. You don't really get much of a snarl. There's some there. There's like an active exhaust system. You turn on and off. It gets louder, obviously. But it, it's it's more of a composed driving experience. Uh, I would not say it's engaging to drive. It's not the kind of vehicle where I was excited behind the wheel, but it felt very competent. And one thing that's very interesting about it is it stays flat constantly, even through high-speed corners, which is not something you can say for like the X7 that I mentioned before, which is also, it's a competent handler, but you you feel that it's big the whole time you're driving it quickly. 
And you feel all that weight. And I never felt like the DBX was 6,000 pounds. Like, it, it probably felt at least 1,000 pounds lighter. That's pretty That's pretty impressive. What do you think? You think the chassis has... You mentioned the chassis. Um, you think that has a major part of that, you know... Um, is it made a part of that equation? Or is it the motor? Is it the steering? Is it the feeling? Like, what is it about this thing that really um, makes me note that? I think, it, I think it's definitely the chassis. I think they've really okay. done their homework. Uh, it was flat without being stiff. Like, you didn't feel like you were getting beat up when you drove across rough roads. And Montreal has tons of those. So I was always on the alert for that. It's not very loud inside either, which is nice. It's, it's, it's a common composed experience that you could drive really quickly on a back road if you wanted to. But this is a car that's going to shine on a road trip or in daily driving. Like, it's it's quite a comfortable daily driver. And it's useful. I guess that's what I was saying with the GTI, like, cargo space. I mean, yeah, it, you drive something this big, and it doesn't have huge cargo space, and you're kind of like, well, that's deceiving. But at the same time, it's useful. Like, we, I put five or six suitcases in the, in the vehicle, and that, that's pretty good. You'd have trouble doing that in, you know, Avantage. <laughs> so, you put five or six suitcases in this, in this DB? Ben, do you have something you want to talk about? Is there something we need to discuss on or off podcast about your future? Or, or like, are you, on, are you on the run? Is somebody after you? No, or? there was a visit to an auction house that I participated in. And at that auction house, numerous suitcases were filled with clothes and brought back to the home. <laughs> nice, okay. So um, That price point you mentioned actually doesn't sound that outrageous at all when you consider that like a fully loaded Cayenne, for example, will be 180 or, or $190,000, which is, you know, like, is did Aston Martin really just make a Cayenne competitor in a way? Or yes. Is this, so this, yeah. is, this is actually about 180. Sorry, I said 170. It's, it's, it's around 180 starting price. It's a Cayenne competitor, except, like I mentioned before, it doesn't go super hardcore. Like, this is... You would not want to, I mean, you don't want to take any SUV to a racetrack, but I think Porsche tries to convince people that like the Turbo Hybrid or Turbo S or whatever it is now, the top trim Cayenne is a vehicle that you would take to the Nürburgring and do some laps, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the, the Aston Martin never really pretends to do that. And I appreciate it that much more for it. So, and then you've got the, and then you've got the Urus, which is at least 200,000, I think, but the RSQ8, I think is a little bit less, which I is think, an interesting place we we found the DBX in, right? RSQ8. I think that the DBX, I don't really know if that competes against the, the DBX because okay. in terms of prestige, I just think Aston Martin and Audi are on different levels. Right. Uh, so I think it's probably a different market regardless of price. Right, right. Good call. Um, I was just, you know, they, they I guess the Urus and the RSQ8 have some sort of similarities and even the Cayenne in terms yeah. of packaging and power and- I, I think it's i think that works to aston martin's advantage because you know yeah. their perceived place in the luxury world if they can sell a, a vehicle I, you know who knows what kind of options you can easily add to this vehicle to just boost the price if you want to get really bespoke and add some custom stuff but their position on the market is such that they um they can command uh more attention to the vehicle and set themselves apart from stuff that's similarly priced so okay. I think that the Cayenne has a built-in customer, and I think people there are people who would never buy a Cayenne, and the people who would never buy a Cayenne are more likely to look at an Aston Martin crossover. Yeah, they would probably also never look at a Lamborghini Urus, right? I think the Lamborghini has an even narrower market. Yeah. Um, okay, talk to me about the cab, the interior. Like, uh, what is it? You know, you said this. It it, it feels like a, a, an Aston Martin, right? Like they they didn't. It wasn't cynical. You said. 
Yeah, so, it's, it's, it feels like any Aston Martin that you've been in, the attention to detail is nice. Uh, it has the same infotainment system that's borrowed from Mercedes-Benz and reskinned for Aston Martin that they've used in their last few vehicles. Um, it's not the latest version. It doesn't have like the cool curved screens and all that stuff if you're into it. I don't really care about all of that. The only, the only part of the, inter- of the interface that I had problems with is the start button is in the middle of the dash. And on either side is like park, reverse, neutral, and drive. And I kept, instead of hitting hitting park, I kept hitting start and turning the vehicle on and off when oh, I didn't no. want to. But that's just something, it's something you get used to. But it's like the most prominent button in the most prominent place. And I, I guess my mind was just like, that should be the park button. And I would just do it again and again and again. Um, can we talk about the exterior design of this thing? I'm a little sad to say, I don't think it, in my opinion, it doesn't have the same visual impact as the other Aston Martin cars like this this the the sports cars and the and the sedan that they have it just to me it, from certain angles it looks like a ford escape right i don't see any ford escape you're wild how can you not see i think that the grill shape is similar the headlight design is 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 almost there it looks like a like a flashy or ford escape from some angles to me the grill looks the grill and the rear of the vehicle are the most estimar aspects of it i okay. mean that clamshell look on the hood Mm-hmm. With the headlights, the way they're canted in, and the giant, gr- the wide mouth grill, that's you know, that's pure a- any other Aston Martin out there. Okay, cool. So you you're you're content with the way that design has has carried through. I really do like the head, the sorry, the hood. It's got these kind of like notches in the or nostrils in the hood, which look really aggressive, really cool. Um, and they haven't like you know, men- you mentioned you know it might off road, it might be a lifestyle vehicle. There isn't like a like a massive roof rack or anything like that, so it looks kind of sleek too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anything else you want to talk about uh, with this Aston Martin, or do you want to do you want to go on to the next vehicle here? I, I mean, that pretty that wraps it up for me. I enjoyed the experience. I think it's an interesting entry into a segment that is typically pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it manages to be individual. It got a lot of attention. Which is interesting to me, too, because you never know, like, what kind of a profile Aston Martin has with the public because they've gone through so much. Uh, Everyone knows them for their coupes. And uh, would those styling cues work on a larger vehicle? Sammy says no. (laughs) But there was a a fair amount of um, consternation whenever I drove this vehicle down the street. I straight up had people asking me how much it costs, which is, you know, kind of a crass question to ask a total stranger. But I guess some people wanted to know. This is another this is another, um, you know, uh, another one more question I I like to I'd like to ask you because I said, you know, when somebody sees a Lamborghini, usually the kids go kind of nuts for a Lamborghini. Younger people really go uh, off the wall for uh, an exotic like that. But when you see like a a Rolls Royce or a Bentley, it's the adults who are like really interested in like how who is that person? How do they get that? What is it? Um, tell me more. What's what makes it worth that money? What where does the where do Aston Martins kind of lie in that spectrum? It seems like very a very balanced thing. I think the I the, don't really drive near many kids, or if oh I yes, do, I don't course. notice. So I, I forgot about that. Can't a, really. It is a it is a standard thing that I remember about the Ben the the Ben situation. Right? No, but I mean, I drive mostly at night, and kids are not out there, so <laughs> it's not. I didn't really see many kids respond to the vehicle. I'm sorry, I can't answer your question, Sammy. Okay, then finally, the AMG the AMG engine is that the is that the soul of the car? No, I don't think so. I think the chassis is the soul of this vehicle. The engine is it's it's a nice companion to have there, and it does a good job. But it's not mm-hmm. it's not the most exciting thing about the vehicle. It's it's very very quick, but uh, it's that's not why you're driving it. I don't think. And the noise, right? Like 
that that is the other aspect. Like that's a personality that people hear and see, hear and feel. Out but of the, it is much AMC, more right? muted. It is much more muted in the DBX than in other vehicles from Aston Martin. Cool. Okay. Let's talk about a car that I think um, does not have a mute button. Does it? Does the, it the, definitely the Aston? Does. <laughs> Pardon? It definitely does. The Audi RS6 that you're t- going to talk about next? Yeah, the Audi the Audi RS6 Avant. So I, I, as the the DBX was a a 24 hour uh, vacation from the RS6 Avant. Wow, um, what a what a day, what a week for Ben Hunting here. So, um, well, thanks for outing my last name, Sam. I don't think we've ever had on the podcast. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I also drove an RS6 in the same week, and the RS6, I, I took it on a very long road trip. I spent a lot of time with the vehicle. Um, it's a car that I have complex feelings about. Uh, oh. I think that it, I things I really liked. It's very useful. It has because it's, it's a wagon. Yeah, it's a wagon. Um, that is, it's it's. Looks super aggressive. Everything I said about attention from the DBX, multiply it by five for the RS6. And this blew me away because it's a wagon, right? So I didn't think people would be that into it. I had people filming me on the highway, leaning outside of their cars and giving me the thumbs up while they were doing it. Like that is something that typically only happens when you're driving an exotic. Right. So... I'm amazed that Audi's brand recognition for the RS line has gotten so big that this is the first RS6 I think that's been sold in North America since 2003. Mm-hmm. And yet people appear hungry for it, Sammy. That does kind of blow my mind. And if I remember the, that 2003 era RS6, you know, you could blink and you can miss it, like in terms of visual visual style. It didn't look like any. From the, from the outside, it didn't look like anything different, right? No, and this vehicle looks the business. I mean, it it, it looks like it's going to murder you like constantly. Mine was painted super bright red, okay. um, and it, it actually shares only four body parts with the A6. Wild. That is that is how different it is. Like it's got the wider track, uh, so the fenders are different. Um, the roof is is uh, the roof, the front doors, and the tailgate are from the European A6 wagon, and okay. everything else is different. Um, what, okay, so, like, who is the RS6 for? Like, what is this car, why does this car exist? It's for somebody who, who like, doesn't want one of these perform- high-performance SUVs, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's in some ways the direct alternative to the GBX that I drove. Obviously, mm-hmm. costs a lot less. Not a lot less, I think $60,000 less or something like that, $70,000 Really? Less. That actually sounds like a lot less. I mean, I thought it was closer than that, but okay. I mean, I don't know the exact price. I thought it was 110000 Wow. That's not bad. Uh, it's 115 There you go. Um, so these kinds of vehicles are built for that class of Germans who make a lot of money but don't want to be flashy and find it crass to, to have a vehicle that shows their wealth. Mm-hmm. And you end up with a vehicle that you can put the family in and cruise at 200 miles an hour on the Autobahn. I think this is like speed limited to 180 or 185 or something like that um, with a certain package that you can get. But they, they don't attract crazy attention. And mm-hmm. that's a concept that doesn't really exist in North America because we don't have the same kind of class system. Uh, our, ours is based more on conspicuous consumption. <laughs> and we don't have the same highways. So, like, you don't necessarily need a vehicle that can go that quickly. So I think that's the market for this car. And then the side market for this car are Audi super fans who want to spend a huge amount of money on a car I thought almost no one would recognize yet was proven wrong about. Well, I mean, I think wagons are getting so rare that when you do see one, it is a bit of, a, of an event, maybe. And, and not only that, but I remember Mercedes telling me a while back that the um, E63 AMG that they had, the wagon version of that, 
um, they would always tell me that the their owners with the highest household income always had a an E sixty three in their in their garage. That was yeah. like it, it was a very particular thing that they they pointed out to us that you'll be surprised at who is the one buying what looks like a a practical sleeper kind of vehicle. And I think that that's part of why these vehicles are consistently still in the mix for European car companies like Mercedes and Audi in particular. It's mm-hmm. because with the E63 in the lineup, they can attract that super high income family that will also buy other Mercedes or other Audis, right? Right. So they, they know they have a built-in market for the car and it's I'm sure it's very profitable to make because it, it doesn't really cost that much extra to build a, an AMG or an RS6, but you can really mark up the, the, the price and then you don't have to sell very many of them to generate the, the profits that you want. So it's, it's win-win for Mercedes and Audi. Okay, so you've, you've mentioned the style, which is fairly eye-catching for a wagon, which used to be kind of mutant in like a sedate sort of design. But what is the part of this car that everyone goes bonkers over? It's got to be that four-cylinder, I mean that four-liter four V8 that makes like 600 horsepower or something. Yeah, it's, it's 591 horsepower oh, and so 590 pound-feet of torque. Uh, um, I believe it's... I the, lost by prices Right rules. I believe it's a nine-speed automatic. Okay. Is, is that right? Uh, I, I don't eight, know. Eight speed. You, it's an eight you speed. like to go one. Up. You like to go one. Is more. it an eight speed? Yeah. Uh, okay. It's the nine speeds in the in the DBX. That's what got me messed up. Okay. It's got uh, it's got all wheel drive. Obviously, torque vectoring, rear differential. I want to say it has rear steering. Okay. Uh, about five degrees on the rear wheels. Uh, cool. for, for opposite or two degrees in the same direction when you're going at high speeds. Um, Did you I, notice it? Did you notice it in action? What makes you like make point that out? Well, it's it's something that I think is also on the E63, and it seems to be the new hotness. I believe Porsche put it on a recent vehicle, too, the, the uh, Cayenne, not the Cayenne, sorry, the Cayenne? Panamera Cross yeah. Turismo, whatever they're calling their wagon version. <laughs> yeah. So it's... It, it's it, the new hotness. I love that. It's a new trend for, like, sedan, like wagon sedans, right? Like, I mean, if it works, you never notice it, right? I mean, where I did notice it was I do. I often do U-turns in front of my house because yeah. I'm that kind of guy. But it's all, It's usually because I can only park Everyone on, does a U-turn in front of your house. They're like, oh, no, there's Ben's place. It's Let's the get spot. out of here. Yeah. No, it's because there's parking restrictions on either side, so I have to change the sides of the, of the road often, and, I, I, and that in turn impacts where I'm heading when I get into the vehicle, blah, blah, blah. So one thing about the Audi is it has a pretty small turning circle, which was pretty okay. cool. Uh, on the highway, I mean, I didn't really notice the uh, the difference in the stability because it's, it's very minor. Um, yeah, I mean, I want to know when the RS6 felt unstable on the highway because that's what the that's what the listeners want to hear right now. There could never have been an opportunity where that this, this car fell out of place, right? No, even at like 120, 130 miles an hour, the vehicle felt wow. very, very <laughs> calm. That's wild. Holy cow. Um, okay, and then um, talk to me about, like, is that, like I asked before, is the engine the, the heart and soul of this vehicle, or is it there more to it with the with the RS6? I think the RS6 is more about the whole package, but okay. I, the engine, compared to the DBX, plays a much larger role in that package. It okay. is stupid quick. It's about, I want to say, 4,500 pounds. So, you know, you're chop, you're chopping off a fair amount of weight compared to the DBX, 15, 1,500 pounds total. But, I got 4,900 pounds. Really? I, my numbers say 45, 45, okay. 75. 
Um, either way, it's it's very, 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 very quick. I mean, again, we're looking at a three-second something, 0 to 60, like 3.6 or 3.3, I don't know, something stupid like that. Right, you yeah. can get carbon ceramic brakes for it if you want. If um, you have more money. Yeah, it's it's re- it, the thrill of the vehicle is the straight line acceleration. It's absolutely mm. stupid. It's incredible how fast it is. When you're in a corner, though, it's not that engaging. It's a vehicle that, again, it's more competent than it is fun. Like, the fun is, oh, I'm in a wagon. It's really fast. I can't believe I'm doing this. But it's not like, wow, I really want to push this car hard and really get the full RS6 experience. I feel like it's the car is not a, you know, flat-out uh, track star. Okay. that's. Re- I think that's really important to talk about these days because I feel like, tr- like, High performance and track uh, and track capability are no longer a matched um, pair, set of phrases, right? Like, usually a high performance car would be able to de- to, to handle a track uh, situation very well. I feel like now we're 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 matching high performance to straight line speed and um, and competency, like you said, capability but not the engaging fun factor that you would find from a track oriented car, right? Yeah, it's not it's not a wild experience. Like it's it's a very buttoned down exhibition of speed. And I like that about that. I, this is a it's just a car where you're like you have a super useful wagon that's extremely comfortable over long distances, looks really cool and goes stupid fast. So all of that is compelling. I don't need it to also give me crazy amounts of adrenaline hanging through the corners. I'm right. completely content with a car that is businesslike about getting the corners done. You know, okay. and if I own this car, I probably own a much lighter uh, mm. sports car for those kinds of, of activities. I don't need to scare my family while I'm driving the, the RS6. You don't need to. Some people might want to just to remind them who. Who's the driver's seat? Although that sounds like an awful thing to do, really. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the interior of this car, because in my opinion, I've always had some difficult times with RS interiors. I found them to be a little less um, showy than BMW's M vehicles and AMG's cars. Um, I've always felt like the RS cars just kind of like they kept uh, the standard and that was it. Well, I, what do you mean by showy? Like, what are you looking for in an interior? I'm looking for for updated materials, more usage of, like, real carbon fiber or trim like that, some seats or features inside the cabin that, that showed that you're spending you're spending $100,000 on a car, and that's not all in the engine and dra- drivetrain and transmission. I think the seats uh, have that feel to them. They, they, okay. they do feel special. You got, a flat, you got a flat bottom steering wheel, too. Uh, Audi uses this, like, dual... Um, LED screen thing on the center stack, but unlike the one that we hate so much in Acura products, it doesn't rely on like the 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 MMI controller is nowhere to be found in this vehicle. Right, I, I'm assuming that 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 generation has passed. So you end up with like a small touch screen that has haptic feedback. Like when you push a button, it it, it vibrates to let you know you've pushed it, and that controls things like. Um, climate control and vehicle settings and stuff. And then for more in-depth vehicle settings, there's a, a, a larger touchscreen above that. And then you have the the big LED screen that's in front of you for the... Um, you can have a big map display in the gauge cluster. You can have all your different uh, RS graphics. So like there's like a shift light kind of thing that happens for when you're in high performance modes. Or you can um, set it up to be minimal if you just want to have like a little speed readout and a little tack and uh, kind of quiet things down. So it felt nice and configurable. It looks good. 
It's definitely not showy. Um, I would say it's a little bit minimalist, and I kind of appreciated that. Okay. Um, I'm I'm impressed with that uh, that virtual cockpit and its um, modularity or its customizability because I've been in a couple of cars recently that have had gorgeous digital dashes that I can't do anything with. I, it's not showing me the information the the way that I wanted the what I want up front and central is not there, and it it gets a little frustrating when you have like that. You know that a digital screen should be allowed. You like you should be able to reconfigure it, whatever, however you want. Yeah, especially and, if it looks like you can, and you end up not being able to do it. And you've just got these static things on the left and the right, and they're just like not telling you what you want. Or if you change tr- like stations or something, and it gives you like a very brief glimpse of what you're listening to. It's like I hate that. I hate that. I want to see that information up front and center all the time, or something like that. Um, what else about the the RS6? Do you think that this? Um, do you th- first of all, do you think there will be another generation RS6? This is a very um, s- philosophical question. In Europe, for sure. Okay, and it'll be gas powered. I I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, <laughs> come on. Plus, you do actually. You don't have a, a crystal ball, but you do have some sort of future see future speaking Ouija board. And uh, I think you should you should go into the the ghost of the future and tell us what you think about the future of Audis. High performance line. Yeah, I think gas powered engines are here for quite a long time. Very cool. Um, they have been spending a lot of time and effort talking about uh, e-tron, and there is this really gorgeous e-tron GT, which is man, come on, be, be honest with me, this is a cool looking car. But why not sell both? You know what I mean? Like, there's no reason it has to be one or the other. Right. I agree with you on that. I just think that eventually, I mean, the the costs of having both will probably catch up to them. Yeah, well, I maybe um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, EVs are a tiny, tiny percentage of the market, and high performance EVs in even smaller port portion. So I don't really see a compelling reason for Audi to stop selling this vehicle. Well, I mean, there's either it's either like commuter. There, there's like two classes of EVs sometimes, like commuter EVs and high performance EVs, and that's it. Like, there's nothing in between. You either have a uh, hundred. Sorry, you either have two hundred horsepower or five hundred and sixty. Like that's all you get. Those are your options. There. I, are you asking this question because of AMG talking about going into electric for the future? Yeah, and I also think BMW has kind of hinted that they're they're including the M um, branding into their future EVs. I mean, this vehicle has a forty-eight volt mild hybrid system in it. Uh, that doesn't sound. That's not a real EV. You thing, can coast right? down, like, I think, for forty seconds uh, with the engine off. As well, just in normal driving, so it does have some aspects of that, and the the uh, it was it was a pretty smooth auto start stop system as a result. Mm-hmm. But I I could see a hybrid version of an RS car in the future for sure. I just don't see full electric like within five years. That that feels way too early for me. I definitely do, and I think over the years they started like when you've added this much weight to these kind of high performance vehicles, the next that next step of 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 incorporating a hybrid or electrified powertrain will be less noticeable on the performance side because they they already know what to do with with managing weight in these vehicles. I think it's more of a question of who do you sell it to. That's that's a that's a big that's a big point. I mean, I think that um, there are buyers of Tesla vehicles who are actually really not impressed with what they've what they've got and are probably looking for something from the more traditional um, automakers. Maybe. But I mean, I don't think Tesla vehicles and RS buyers are necessarily the same people. Like, hmm. this is the RS line is exclusively for people who want the world's fastest wagon, right? Or or <laughs> yeah. one of the world's fastest wagons. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm 
I'm glad that they brought this thing to to North America. Do you think the RS6 was the better better pick over an RS4 wagon? Uh, I I mean there is like if there isn't there isn't an RS4, right? Yeah, no. There used to be. Sure. You're not being fun today, Ben. You gotta, you gotta help me out here. Well, I don't know. You want me to? I know you've carried the whole, but your back must be hurting from carrying the podcast today. Like truly. Yeah, let's um, let's move on to to a listener question, <laughs> so we can we can put the RS6 to bed. Okay, sure. We got a an email from uh, Jim who messages through the website uh, the website's contact form. Uh, he asked, "Why do you think that visibility on cars is so much worse today compared to cars from 15 to 20 years ago?" He Comments that the greenhouse of cars look really squashed. There's really, really narrow side windows, and uh, he even he even editorializes on this, and he says that he finds it easier to drive a car that you can see out of in all directions. It's probably safer as well. So he wants to know if this trend is based on fashion or aerodynamics or anything else. Well, I think there's one very compelling reason as to why um, greenhouses are so the amount of glass in a car is so much smaller and shorter than it used to be. And that is the roof crush standards that were introduced in 2009. That was like a rollover test, right? Yeah. So starting in 2009, any vehicle that weighed 6,000 pounds or less, it has to withstand three times its own weight on the roof. And they do that testing by applying it alternately from one side to the other. So it's like, I believe it's a dynamic test. Um, the, the success for the, for the test be is they have a crash test dummy in it. That's a median male height and, uh, the roof can't touch its head. So if the vehicle, if it passes that, then it passes the test. So in order to pass that, you end up with very thick A, B and C pillars, which Mm -hmm. eat into the amount of space you have for glass horizontally. Yep, and then you have a the less glass. Um, I mean, obviously, the shorter those pillars are, the better they're going to be able to resist crushing. So you end up right. with roofs roof lines that are lower, and it yep. doesn't change the inside of the vehicle because you're still sitting. The hip point is still the same. You're still sitting at the same point uh, you would normally in a car, but they raise the sides of the vehicle, so you end up with these kind of gun slits along the side. That are there essentially like it's it's hilarious. Yeah, it's like a pillbox. So that's the biggest reason why you're starting to see or why you're starting. I guess it's been almost 10 years now, but uh, why vehicles are so hard to see out of. And I think a lot about my Jeep, my Grand Wagoneer, which was designed in the 60s. And like the pillars on that vehicle are the the size of, I don't know, a handful of spaghetti. (laughs) But it has a little bit more rigidity than that, right? A little bit more. A tiny bit. But if if I was to roll that vehicle over, I really don't think the roof would support the weight of the vehicle, let alone three times the weight of the vehicle. And that's done so that when you're actively rolling, I mean, the forces applied to the roof are very, very high. It's it's not like you just flip the vehicle upside down, like picking it up with two giant hands, you know? So um, that's why you are, of course, being picked up by a giant and flipping and he's flipping you over. I mean, that has happened. I'm sure that's going to happen eventually. So moving on. uh, No, wait, I I want to keep talking about this, not the Jeep, but um, there's other aspects that have really impacted design um, and visibility. I have mentioned in the past, like Subaru has this massive like computer, like it's almost like a supercomputer on the on the windshield. They've got these two cameras and all of this like safety array, and that impacts the front visibility of the vehicle, which is usually the easiest thing to sort of design for. And I think I feel like they end up pinching the forward visibility, and I think that's uh, that's a trend that we're seeing these days. More automakers pack all of this safety gear 
um, in the in the front windshield of the front um, area of the vehicle, it it is absolutely safety driven. All of this all of this design. Um, all these design decisions, right? But if and at the rear of the vehicle, it's kind of the opposite. You end up with style decisions dictating that. Weird, so right? you this whole four door coupe thing has really created roof lines that plunge dramatically at the rear of the vehicle, and you end up with a small, small amount of glass at the back. It, it can be a real hassle to see out of. Um, you end up having to use the backup cameras that are starting to become. Man- I, I don't know if it's mandated yet, but they're very soon going to be. Uh, required equipment on every vehicle if it's not already so it's it's kind of all these factors together are creating a situation where you're safer inside the vehicle but you're not necessarily like as you pointed out jim you might not be safer in the sense that it's harder for you to see while you're driving and you might be putting other people at danger like pedestrians and i I say this because vehicles that have very thick pillars at the front it's so easy for someone to hide behind that pillar when they're standing on the curb a lot of the times i'm stopped at a stop sign and someone will walk out in front of me that maybe i didn't see because where they were standing it was right where the roof support was so that's not something that used to happen and i i think that these vehicles they keep occupants safer, but they put pedestrians and cyclists and maybe other motorists at more risk. Um, I want to talk a little bit as well about something you mentioned before. Vehicles that weighed um, under 6,000 pounds, he said, have to have to adhere to this sort of safety standard or the safety test. They have to pass the safety test. What about the vehicles that weigh over that? What happens there? It's uh, one and a half times. So if, they're you're between, if you're between less... 6,000 and 10,000, it's one and a half times vehicle weight. See, that's interesting um, because I think we joked about it a, a couple of weeks ago, but the new Hummer EV is going to weigh 9,000 pounds, and the new F-150 Lightning is said to weigh 6,500 pounds. So they have different crash uh, or rollover test standards, and that's going to be really interesting to see how that pulls off because these batteries are, su- are super heavy, like well, really, really heavy. If you think about it, the F-150 already has – it already meets the standard, right? Hmm. because yeah. or it meet, it's very close it, to the standard it meets the three times um the weight standard it right? meets the three times the weight standard for like a five thousand pound edition so a six thousand pound edition is probably not difficult and and here's something else i want to point out too just because this is the minimum standard doesn't mean that's what it's being designed to i know mm-hmm. f- for a fact subaru as a company has almost always pushed past the roof crush standard and mm-hmm. been ahead of the game uh in terms of what what's actually legally required Mm -hmm. so uh it's not to say that other car companies aren't doing that as well this is just the minimum cool um i really appreciate the question jim and if you want to ask a question just like jim did you can head on over to our website it's unnamedautomotivepodcast.com there's a contact form there you fill that out we'll uh read your question and uh talk about it on air which is pretty cool yeah and uh if you wanted to contact us in other ways you can do that on social media. I'm on Instagram at Hunting Benjamin. While Sammy prefers a cesspool at his Twitter, you can find him there at Sammy underscore hot like you're laughing. There are plenty of friendly people on Twitter. I've had a couple of our listeners chime in and ask me questions. Um, so thank you to those guys who are fr- being friendly on Twitter. I know it's a rare, it's a rarity, but uh, I appreciate it. Um, additionally, when you go to our website, you can see all of our previous episodes. You can see photos of the cars that we talked about and links to uh, the stories that we've written about them, and uh, that helps you get a better understanding of what we're talking about. And then additionally, if you come to our website, you can subscribe to our podcast using a variety of buttons on the, on the top of the website. And Sammy, what are you going to be talking about next week? 
Next week, I've got a couple of plug-in um, EVs that I want to talk about. Either the Jeep Wrangler 4xe or the Lincoln, uh, I think it's called the Aviator Grand Touring or Grand Aviator or something like that. It's got a funny name. Grand Aviator. Okay, I'm going to be talking about the Mustang Mach-E. Okay, so we've got a little bit of electrification going on next week, which is uh, sure to um, make some listeners happy. And I've also heard from other listeners that we should shut up about all this uh, hybrid stuff. You know, Sammy, don't editorialize about the podcast before it's even happened. Oh, yeah, true. Okay. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, I can't wait to talk to you next week, Ben. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.